Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 27th, 2012, and my guest is Roger Knoll, professor of economics at Stanford University. Roger, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. You've been a central figure in the application of economics to sports, and that's our topic for today. I want to start with an area you've written widely on, the financial impact of sports teams and sports stadiums on their communities. What do we know about that? What have we learned over the years in analyzing those effects? First of all, it depends on the kind of facility that an arena that has multiple uses, say it's going to have a basketball team and or a hockey team, has uh, other potential uses like concerts and tractor pulls. Rodeo. All kinds of stuff. (laughs) And so uh, a well-managed arena can be occupied 250 to 300 nights a year, and they can break even. Um, And indeed, if you... You know, I, I don't think there's, there are very many cities out there who regret having built an arena uh, unless the city next door also builds one and then you have two that are half occupied. Yeah. So there, you can't really argue vociferously against building an arena. Uh, baseball and football stadiums, however, um, there aren't any that have been substantially subsidized where the local community has received anything remotely resembling a, a reasonable return on investment. They are financial black holes, especially football stadiums. It's only six times a year, Yes, the well, then they may make the playoffs, right? And then you've got a couple of preseason games. So True, give them ten, 12, or eleven. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah really got on a limb. So uh, yeah, even in the best of circumstances. What you've created is something that essentially sucks the blood out of a neighborhood because it's so rarely used. And indeed, they create slums as opposed to being engines of growth. And uh, cities who put in hundreds of millions of dollars into football stadiums inevitably find themselves with big losses. Baseball is not quite so bad because it's 80, 81. Yeah. <laughs> or a, a few more. A, yeah, 81 plus uh, games per year. Um, and uh, But the problem with baseball has been that the owners have realized that it's a really bad idea to have Fenway Park, where all that concession money walks across the street to the bars that are not part of the Red Sox empire. So the modern version of a baseball stadium essentially is a baseball field, the stands, a shopping center, and then acres of parking to make certain that no one can ever go anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, so that's Turner Field. That's the, uh... the Miami is the best example because not only when you get past the parking lot, then you've got to cross a freeway mm-hmm. to get to anything else. <laughs> so uh, what that means, again, is that... Uh, the facilities that used to have some spillover benefits to the neighborhood no longer do. <laughs> so it's like even a harder case to make, yeah. Yankee Stadium, for example. The, it used to be the case there were memorabilia shops and bars and things like that adjacent to the Yankee Stadium. They've disappeared. They're all inside the stadium. They're the all Yankees inside are capturing the stadium. that. Exactly. Revenue, yeah. So the bottom line to it is cities uh, should not subsidize baseball and football stadiums 
if the goal is engine of economic growth or financial benefit. Um, now, I, since I don't have anything against San Francisco uh, subsidizing the opera, I can't say, therefore, it follows you shouldn't pay the money at all. But the decision to pay the money should be based purely on having it in the community because you like it, yeah. as opposed to it's going to return some great financial bonanza. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's embarrassing to say, but it's a special interest group called Sports Fans who, and, and the special... The cronyism of the of the owner, who often is getting generating the political support for those subsidies. Well, the the political support is is the sports fans, plus the construction industry oh, and yeah, well, construction too. unions, plus the banks who are going to handle the financing. Uh, you put all those together, and you're typically up to twenty to twenty five percent of the vote. Now you got to get another big hunk of votes in order to get it past the uh, electorate. And that's where the economic development argument comes from, is that, that uh, if people vote purely on the basis of shall we throw $1,000 per capita at a sports team, they'll generally say no unless you can convince them they're going to get a return on it. And the way you get up to over 50% support is to promise them that it's going to be an economic benefit. You're talking about situations where there'd be a public vote on whether to subsidize the state, which is not always true, though. It's not always true, but usually it is. Uh, it, it, hilariously enough, there's a great quote from the mayor of, uh, of uh, a town in Arizona, which says, we always put it to a vote. If the people say yes, then we build the stadium. If the people say no, we build the stadium anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but usually there are votes, and indeed um, the frequency of winning the votes has gone down dramatically in the last fifteen years. Uh, my favorite vote is when the good citizens of my former home, Pasadena, voted eighty to twenty against giving the Rose Bowl to the NFL. Hmm. So there's hope. <laughs> when you say giving the Rose Bowl to the NFL, what, what do you mean? They were going to spend approximately $350 million to renovate it so it would have NFL standards, which means lots of luxury boxes, and then give it to the NFL rent-free. To attract? To attract a pro football yeah. team to Los Angeles. And they voted, yeah. So they, despite the claims, I'm sure there was an economic study that showed all the multiplier effects, but despite those claims, the electorate... Voted, was not convinced. They exactly. just need, they need to study more econometrics, Roger. <laughs> well, the yeah, the Rose Bowl, the city, the city of Pasadena turned out to be against it, and that uh, the economic development argument didn't wash. Uh, let's talk about the sports uh, industry in general. It, it's changed incredibly as an economic phenomenon over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, let, let's start first with labor relations, so the relationship between the the players and the owners, and uh, both the legal environment uh, and and other factors have changed that tremendously. Uh, what what important? How would you summarize the importance of what has changed, and why did it change in terms of the labor relations? Well, the the of course the crucial fact about labor relations is that uh, all sports have attained some degree of free agency. That is to say, once a player plays a certain number of years, they qualify to be part of the normal labor market. Um, and, you know, at the time this was being advocated, uh, you know, economists had written as early as in the 1950s that there was no good reason in an economic basis for the, the reserve clause, the player reservation system. Uh, the owners had responded by 
saying it would destroy professional sports to have a labor market for sports. And indeed, in the 1970s, they all got free agency and we have no sports left. Yeah, well, they were right. Yeah. <laughs> they were so precious. Uh, so the, the, first, the very first question to ask is, what was the effect? Uh, and the effect was roughly to double the fraction of revenues that went to players from in the range of 25 to 30 percent to in the range of 50 to 60 percent of revenues in all the sports now go to the players. Which is closer to the, uh, closer in the to national income exactly. accounts where it's two-thirds pretty much historically. Yeah, the sports industry probably would have an even greater percentage of its revenue going to, to labor in the absence of the restrictions that remain. The draft, be, for example. Because there's no capital investment. If cities give you a stadium. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, how you measure, <laughs> yeah, how you measure those fractions, obviously, there's accounting yes. issues. And yeah, yes, good the, point. The, fraction, the fraction of income going to players would be substantially lower if they had to pay for their stadiums, but right. they don't. So, um, typically. That, yeah. yeah, typically. There are a few that do, but yep. in the mo mostly they don't. So what that basically says is that, that the market worked, that teams didn't spend themselves into oblivion. The, the, the second issue, of course, was the reason that free agency was supposed to destroy sports as we know it today was the issue of competitive balance, that the Yankees would hire all the best baseball players and the New York Giants would hire all the best football players, um, and, uh, uh, Green Bay would never, and yes, Green Bay would Milwaukee. be unable to compete. Any, any small town with a small market would be unable to compete. There's some truth to it. <laughs> and, there's some truth to it. The, the interesting, there's sort of, the first obvious empirical point to, is that in, in no sport has, has there been a, a clear reduction in the degree of competitive balance, measured any way you want to measure. It's kind of a, uh, a difficult concept to quantify. Sure. Because does it mean the difference in the quality of the best and worst team in a given year? Probability it, of winning, is it equal for every team each year? Is, it, are there, is there no dynasty? Some, yeah. Right. Does it yeah. mean multiple wins? You know, it, it's, uh, is it the same teams in the playoffs or different things? You can imagine a world in which you would... The best team wins 75% of its games, and the worst team wins 10% of its games, but the identity of those teams changes from year to year, Correct. and so different teams win the championship every year. That could still be regarded as balanced. But it turns out it doesn't matter how you measure it, that um, the, the presence of, of dynasties, that is, teams who persistently uh, are in the championships, you know, get to the semifinals or finals of the end-of-season tournaments, uh, or the spread in the one-loss records between the best and the worst teams, um, all the measures of competitive balance say that it's at best no difference, and in a few cases it's gotten more balanced. Like baseball is definitely more balanced now than it was, and the NBA is more balanced because if just before there was free agency, the Celtics won nine years in a row. Yeah. So uh, the prediction that uh, this would lead to uh, competitive imbalance was false, and then we can ask the next question: Is why? You know, because economists happen to have been right about this one. Now we we get we have very few victories where we actually <laughs> predict the outcome correctly, so we're going to have to trumpet this one. <laughs> which the, which part of it though? The, the the one part you already said. Obviously, the economic prediction would be a, a shift in in uh, revenue to the toward the players yes. because of competition, and, and that, that was happened. correct. Although some, I'm sure, could have argued is not enough competition. It would, 
you know, it's still a limited number of teams, but a surprisingly, uh, impact, surprisingly large impact for some people. But there's definitely been an impact. Yes. The, the, the question is, why would one not expect that the degree of competitive balance would be pretty much unaffected by player market rules? And, and the, the answer to that is that who owns the right to the player, whether it's the player or the team, doesn't really matter in the long run because if a team is more valuable in another city than the city in which he's currently playing, he'll end up getting either just transferring because he gets a better wage offer or being traded or sold. All right, and that was the crew, that was the, yeah, the, the thing that convinced uh, the early sports economists like Cy Rottenberg, who wrote the first important paper on the economics of sports in 1956, that uh, the th- was was the ability of the Yankees and the Dodgers to retain high quality teams by simply buying players from other teams, and indeed in the 1950s, the uh, we can recall Kansas as, City Athletics. Kansas were, City yeah. after after the Athletics moved to Kansas City, they basically became a farm team for uh, the Yankees. So the that insight, which is is called the invariance principle, that's what Rottenberg called it. You know, four years later, Ronald Coase wrote his famous paper and called it the Coase, and we all call it the Coase theorem. But it's the basic story of it is in the absence of some significant market failure, um, one doesn't expect the initial allocation of an asset to determine where it's actually going to be used in the long run. The only determine, only thing that get changes is who captures the benefit. Exactly. Right. The only thing is the transference of income. Resources flow to their highest use. That's there's, exactly. Or at least there's it. pressure on it. Now, Coase said if their transaction costs are too high. That might not happen, so you then yes. would be care a lot about what the initial. Yeah, I mean, most people who cite the Coase theorem get it wrong. They get, the, they get the sign wrong because yeah. what the whole paper is about is all the ways it might not work. Correct. I know. No, it drives me crazy. No. So we'll call this the anti Coase theorem. Yeah, I, I said it drives it drives mm-hmm. me crazy, but it also drives Ronald Coase crazy. We yes. we just uh, we just interviewed him recently. Uh, yeah. I just interviewed him recently, and it he, it drives him crazy too. Okay. Yes, I know, and, and I, I I was at his hundredth birthday party, oh. and uh, so I. He's him crazy, but the but the 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 insight is still valid. Can we identify the common sources of market failures that would cause what is called the Coase theorem not to be true in the baseball players' labor market? And the answer is no, because it's a it's a uh, a fairly atomistically competitive market in which you're you're making bids for players who have well known track records and their values are well understood. Although there's of course. The irony about it is that the uh, uh, we talked about Kansas City, Kansas, the Kansas City Athletics in the fifties sold a lot of players to the Yankees. Yeah, uh, Oak, the Oakland Athletics uh, became a team that was known for trading players and didn't sell them. Sometimes they did, but they often traded players to more uh, high, up, upscale market teams for for prospects and and, yes. and draft picks and other things. Not draft picks, prospects typically. And if you're astute. As Billy Bean was, at least for still a while, is. and still is, you can. They're they're do, doing it with this year with well, this smoke year. and mirrors. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my son, my sons uh, who are big fans of Moneyball, was said, uh, do, "Do you think he's got a new trick? It could be, or it could be lucky. You know, there's there's all randomness in all activities like this, but who knows? But my point is that is that there are a lot of intangibles 
they can't. What's great about I think what makes baseball and especially so exciting and interesting as a fan is the incredible amount of statistical evidence we have, and mm-hmm. that's improved, and we've gotten better at understanding it. But there's still these things that can't be measured: how a player is going to perform under pressure in a bigger market, and uh, psychological issues. So there's still these imperfections that either lead to random outcomes or astute outcomes that we don't know. But. Well, the the probabilistic nature of sports is. I think uh, a major source of interest in it, right? Sure. It's not going to the ballet. Right. It's not going to the opera where you know that it's going to die at the end. going to die at the yeah. end. No, that's what makes it exciting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the unpredictable. So the unpredictable aspect of it, but in 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 terms of you know uh, a baseball player who is going to come at bat, come up to bat five hundred times a year, it's you have a fairly good predictor of how much he's going to contribute to the team, and I think that's the crucial part. The the market. Has a lot of information Correct. in it, no doubt, and a lot of it's people in it on both but they sides. Have a lot. And apropos Billy Bean, I mean, the interesting thing about about the uh, the A's is, of course, that they not only sell players, they buy players. Yeah, they they sell the expensive ones and buy the cheap Correct. ones, and uh, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Doesn't in years, you know, if if what he's doing is taking a player who's got five or six years worth of experience who's about to come to free agency and selling that player for the purpose of acquiring a bunch of minor leaguers who still are two years away from the major leagues who have the same expected value, but they're not certain, then every so often he's going to do extremely well. Every so often he'll do very badly like they did a few years ago. They did exactly the same number the last time they sold off all their stars and and it didn't turn out well. They ended up with a team that was below 500. Now it worked. The last time they just sold off all their players a couple of years ago, and these kids have turned out to be stars. So, right. there's always, as you say, yeah. it's a small. Yeah. Over, if you had 500 players to do it over, you get a certain expectation. Yes. When every year it's three or four, or but six, it's only it's, a small number. Yeah. yeah. So it's. I mean, I think that that um, the 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 main difference, of course, between. Uh, Oakland or Minnesota or some of the other small market teams is that they the only game they can play is the lottery on young players, and so you're going to see them rise and fall in the standards if they play their cards right, and some years they're going to have really good teams. Uh, by contrast, um, if you're a team with a lot of money, like the Yankees or the Dodgers, uh, and you're not in the pennant race, you've made a big mistake because you have much less... Variance. Yeah, that'd be the Mets, uh, for yeah. example, who spent yeah. a lot of money and had very little. But to go for. T- historically, until recent years, Texas was that way. They spent lots Correct. of money for no apparent purpose. <laughs> well, it's because there's yeah. people are make mistakes. They uh, make mistakes, obviously, and there's a random element. Uh, and you know, there's an interesting question of whether um, you know, I interviewed uh, Michael Lewis on this. Mm-hmm. I asked him why he thought you know Billy Bean told his story. Publicly, right? Mm-hmm. He had a market advantage, and he revealed it. Yeah. And it's clear that that market advantage has shrunk. His insights into on-base percentage and other things that gave him an edge. Um, one hypothesis would be simply that people would have figured it out anyway. Well, they had, or that they had. They but Michael had. Lewis's view, yeah. which I don't know if it's accurate or not, but his view was that Billy Bean felt that baseball's old-fashioned. These people are not going to. Pay attention to it anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And I think he was partially right. I think, uh, both stories are true. Correct, because yeah. I think some owners, uh, I think this was Michael Lewis's point mm-hmm. also, some owner, the younger owners who are more 
less traditional and have other uh, motives and other things going on, we're much more open to hiring statistically sophisticated general managers, whereas some of the older ones just stayed the way they always had, hired their friend or somebody who's got a track record that maybe not so accurately predicted. No, I think that's right. I think that the uh, to get to the point, I think that the the teams that were going to change their management strategy and adopt an econometric approach yeah. to how you hire players, um, those teams had already learned the lesson and, and by the 2000s were already doing it. Yeah. And then the, the other set wasn't going to change right. anyway because they're more traditionalist. Now, as a sports fan, one of the things that's frustrating is the uh, perpetual drama when there's a new labor contract. Uh, happens in football, happens in baseball, mm-hmm. happens in all the major sports. Um, and there's a threat of a strike, a lockout, other things that go on. Uh, can that, is that going to just keep going? They, yes. They can't seem to yes. get better at that. Yeah, explain and, why. Um, the, there's two reasons. At the heart of it is that sports unions are inherently extremely weak. Sports unions? Yes. That, and the reason they're inherently weak is the median voter in the union is somebody who expects to have only one or two more years uh, of playing career. And so if he loses a year, he's lost a huge 50% yeah. of his future lifetime income <laughs> yeah. by losing one year. Um, so players' uh, unions have a very difficult time keeping the union together during a lockout or a strike. Um, Given that, owners periodically take runs at breaking the union, and they usually can succeed in getting significant givebacks. Most collective bargaining agreements have the property that in them is a big short-term giveback, and that eventually sort of disappears uh, because the way the, the agreements are written um, it's sort of like a one-time hit, but they don't change the trajectory. And so within a few years, you're back up to where you were, and it's time for another one. It's also abetted by the fact that because of our wonderful tax laws, uh, which create a huge financial incentive to sell teams after you've owned them for seven to ten years, the the characters on the ownership side change dramatically between collective bargaining agreements. And you get people in there who think that the previous owners were just suckers. stupid yeah, suckers, and yeah. that they can do better. And so you, you find really aggressive new owners coming in saying, no, 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 if you guys had just hung in there, we could have broke the union and gotten back down to the 25% payroll uh, that we had in 1965. And these are also owners who are coming from industries where they've been successful, obviously, they have to be very wealthy, yes. where the labor management relations are very different, the competitive environment's very different. And that brings up the magic question, which is the subject of my most recent paper. <laughs> Far away. <laughs> which is, in Europe, sports unions are close to non-existent. In the United States, sports unions are extremely visible and seemingly quite effective. And sympathize with but, by the public, I would add. And sympathize with the public. But in Europe, three times as many people belong to labor unions as in the U.S. In the outside sports. In outside sports. So this that presents a puzzle. Yeah. Why is it the case that the only 
powerful unions left in the U.S. are government workers and sports, yeah. <laughs> whereas the European economies the remain highly unionized no matter where you are. And the reason for that is antitrust. That uh, antitrust is a an out for a union in the United States, and it's really not in Europe. That Explain. Pri- private antitrust is almost non-existent in Europe. It's beginning to be come into existence, but in Europe, almost all antitrust cases are uh, initiated by the government or the European Union. All right. Whereas in the United States, almost all antitrust cases are private. The, private meaning initiated by a private right it's two private parties litigating so if if <laughs> i think you are engaged in a monopolistic practice that hurts me i can sue you whereas in europe you there's some opportunity for that but the vast majority of cases it's the government investigating somebody and um it's there have been a couple of antitrust cases in europe uh but they're much less frequent and much more difficult. And in particular, one thing that you cannot do in Europe is um, commingle labor relations and antitrust. In the U.S., the law has this process called decertification, which is a union can convert itself from a collective bargaining union to simply a professional association like the American Bar Association or the American Economics Association and thereby become just an aggregation of private actors in which case the antitrust laws apply and the new organization, the professional association, can then sue the employer uh, if that employer engages in anti-competitive practices. The reserve clauses, the restrictions on the player markets that exist in all the sports, um, once you get outside the context of unionization, uh, are antitrust violations. The only way they can be converted into something that is exempt from the antitrust laws is through a collective bargaining agreement. Only labor, organized as a union, has the power to grant an antitrust exemption to the employers for collusive behavior in the labor market. That is an extraordinarily powerful weapon. And so you have this wonderful, if you, if you read carefully the articles about impending lockouts and strikes, like right now in the National Hockey League, what you read is the owners want a union and the players don't. Now, there's, that is really a very strange right. circumstance, Doesn't but it's sense. driven by a peculiar legal institution in the United States, which is labor unions in sports have something to offer that is extremely valuable to owners, which is the antitrust exemption, uh, particularly the antitrust exemption of the rookie draft, the cap on rookie salaries, things like that. If the if the if the leagues attempted to do that outside of a collective bargaining agreement, they would be thrown out as an antitrust violation. So, which is weird because you know. We could spend the rest of the time on this, and I don't want to, but I just want to mention it. A league is a, a sports league is a weird thing because it's a you can't play on your own. You need an opponent, uh, and you need the drama of the competition. So you need other teams. Unlike a business, you can't just say I'm going to start a, a sports team that just wears the uniforms and wanders around. It has to have opponents. So this league is this weird thing. It's the league itself. There's is, always Notre Dame. Yeah, well, we're going to get back to Notre Dame. Uh, we're going to get to Notre Dame in a minute. But basically, you've got, uh, you have to have other, whether you're in a, a league officially or not, you do have to have other opponents. 
and then, but at the same time, each team's trying to win. Each team's each team's owner's trying to maximize its profits. But if you maximize your profits on your own and you drive all your opponents out of business, you don't have a league anymore. But that's not the profit maximizing solution. Obviously, so so there's this weird mix of. You have to collude in some dimension. You have to build a schedule. You have to have. That's not collusion, though, because it has no adverse effect on the market. The definition of an anti-competitive uh, restraint is one that reduces the efficiency of the market, not increases it. Yeah, I'm using collusion in the everyday sense yeah. of the word, meaning get together yeah. to plan stuff. But the but there's there's lots of things where that analogy breaks down. All right. Um, first of all, the teams don't have to own the league, and indeed, in most of the world, they don't. Um, that is to say, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the football league in England, which is the second, third, and fourth professional divisions, is a separate legal entity from the member clubs. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and indeed, throughout most of sports in most of the worlds, leagues are separate. And in the United States, NASCAR is separate from the individual right. teams that race in NASCAR events. Likewise, racetracks are separate. Uh, so there is no good reason why you can't have uh, competition in the team market and competition in the league market. The NCAA is organized as a series of conferences that compete with each other. Uh, the NCAA gets in trouble uh, when it tries to override the conferences and make rules that apply to all colleges. But and it has lots of those rules, obviously. It has lots of those rules, but it has ha- it's lost a lot of uh, legal battles about them, too. You know, most important being when it lost the right to sell broadcast rights for all of colleges, which are now sold by conferences. So, um, yes, it's true that there has to be a, an entity which you can think of as a standard-setting organization. You can think of right. the NFL as the IEEE settings. The IEEE sets standards for computers to talk to printers. Right. Right. So you need a standard-setting organization because you could have rules that each team some some rules that each team lives by. Exactly how big your field is. And then the question is, when does the necessary standard-setting uh, activity? Where does it end? Yeah stop and spill over into anti-competitive market restrictions? That is the interesting question. And, uh, um, you know, with respect to player market rules, the the economics research is virtually unanimous. Nothing is ever unanimous in economics, but as close to unanimous as you can get that the player market restrictions are unnecessary for the financial health of leagues. Although it is definitely true that teams are worth more if they can restrict competition in the player market. Back, it's back to your old point, right? Mm-hmm. It's a question of who's going to capture the gains. It's who gets the gains. Yeah. What, what, I, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about on that, but I, let's, <laughs> let's move on because there's yeah. a lot of other We could go on forever yeah, on that's that That's a good one. one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk, you mentioned college sports, the NCAA, I want to talk about that. Um, we have a very weird thing to an economist. It's not so weird to the general public, although they're starting to think it's a little weird. We have a system where uh, young men and women, mostly young men, produce millions and millions of dollars of of profit and revenue in a few sports. I think mainly two, mostly. And there are exceptions probably on certain campuses. But in general, football and basketball, especially football, produce enormous amounts of revenue for the college uh, writ large, they 
play for free other than tuition benefits and food and lodging, but they don't draw a salary. Uh, there's tremendous restrictions on what they can do with their time during those four years, they, and often longer uh, if they're redshirted or other things or injured. Um, they can't work part-time uh, on the side because that could be a source of bribery. Uh, they're forced, if they want to retain that scholarship, and in some sports is their only way to the professional, generally almost the only way to professional careers, uh, they have to practice it. it Shocking, I think, again, to the non-insider, it's shocking what their workload is like day-to-day. Yes. Uh, it's not just the games and a little practice on the side. They're weightlifting and training year-round. Um, and because of what economists would call rents, the, the profits that are generated from that activity, there's still competition for those that takes place in stadium construction, payment to certain coaches. And as a result, we've had... Recently, especially, a set of very ugly scandals in, in college sports. Recruiting is a perennial problem in terms of, of so-called cheating, which is an inevitable example of resources trying to flow to their highest valued use. Um, but they don't flow to the, very easily to the athletes. Uh, they flow okay. to others, typically the coaches, I think, and to the universities. And we have this horrific Penn State scandal, which is, I think, tied in pretty obviously to this phenomenon in some dimension. Where do you see this heading? Uh, what, if anything, might change? And what, if anything, might we do to change it? Uh, I'm not sure it's changeable or whether it's wise to try to change it. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it's, this is another topic that could go on for several hours. And so let's. I, I, I'm giving you about ten minutes, right? I know. Because I have other I'll, questions. I'll, I'll just let me just start off with sort of the the obvious point, which is the price of virtue is going up extremely rapidly. Yeah, it's costly right. to be a good guy. It it twenty years ago, it cost you a few, a few million to be a good guy. Now it costs you a few tens of millions. Yeah. All right. Now you're foregoing the amount you're foregoing that the the. the um, that the we'll start with the factual base. All right, the factual base is 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 not quite the way you characterize it. That it's only about fifty teams, universities yeah. that make a lot of money on their Correct. football team, and it's a somewhat larger number, but still less than half of the Division One basketball teams that make money. Um, the rest of them do not generate this huge surplus. They're trying to get it, but... <laughs> the, the, they're trying to, and indeed, every so often, uh, a school that you haven't really heard of will suddenly burst forth. Boise State. Yes, uh, or Gonzaga in yep. basketball. They got the right? same thought. Yep. And, uh, and, and they will do very well, although their, their time on the stage usually is short. It's not... It's sometimes they make it permanently, but usually it's a coach or two, and then they fall back because or they don't cheating. have. Yeah, yeah. or they, they lose the coach. To a, they lose yeah. the coach to another. They school. either lose the coach or they're found to have cheated. Yeah. All right. Um, so the the what what the NCAA has done is organize itself in a way that uh, allows, for the most part, flagship state universities which start with a huge fan base because yeah. such a large fraction of the people in the state went there. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, including a good fraction of the state legislature. Went there, yeah. <laughs> no, this is a terrible public choice problem, is why exactly. I view it. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have this enormous political base to make the University of Nebraska 
be a great football power, or University of Oklahoma, or the University of Michigan, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Um, LSU, Georgia. Yes. They're, they're all the large. People, people don't notice this. Large state universities, which yes. have which seat ninety to one hundred and six thousand people, are yeah have thirty to fifty thousand students, have hundreds of thousands of alumni, and can pack a football stadium. 80 to 100,000 for uh, every single game. And people can't figure out why Notre Dame isn't what it used to be, but it's yes. pretty obvious why it's not what it used to be. Exactly. That can't access the public it's purse. It's too small. Yeah. And it's too small. Yeah. See, Notre Dame it has, suffers from the same problem Stanford does, yep. which is... High we, standards of academic... They have a high academic standard in a fairly small alumni base. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, uh, Notre Dame has done far better, actually, against the onslaught of the big state university than uh, anybody else, frankly. USC is the only other yes. name you could think of, really. Yes. Uh, yes. Duke in basketball, which is a relatively cheap yeah. sport. There are, but, but in the, football, it's... For the most part, if you, if you look at the list of the top uh, perpetual top 25 teams, it's mostly these big flagship state universities, and a very large fraction of them are not the academically top flagship state universities. And so these are these are institutions whose public visibility and political popularity hinges more on their athletics than on their academics and, and what goes on them as universities. So I interrupted you. We were talking about the NCA's role yes. in this. Go ahead. But th th that part for me, the part you mentioned so far, is the the willingness of the legislature to tolerate all kinds of things and encourage funds going to these things. Well, yeah, and then, see, in theory, the NCAA is an organization of university presidents. That's in theory what it is. In practice, uh, at most of these institutions, the, the director of athletics uh, is a more powerful person and a more highly paid person than the president of the university and has enormous local political influence and for the most part, there are exceptions. The directors of athletics are the ones who run the NCAA, and they run it uh, for the benefit of the Department of Athletics. What that, of course, means is they like having as many sports as possible because the bigger the enterprise, the bigger the budget, and the more important they are. And they also organize things to benefit the coaches as well because they're also extremely powerful. The, 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 the revenue effect uh, on coaches' salaries is enormous because you, what, what you're hired to do as a coach is primarily to recruit. That's mainly what it is. It's, it's, there are people out there who are really good coaches, but... If they're not the, good recruiters, I ain't going to... If they're not, if, if not first-rate recruiters, they're not going to have a top-20 team. And so what, what the nature of the market for players is about is everybody has the same price tag. It's going to cost you one scholarship. And everybody has exactly the same price tag. You as a coach, if you're really good at recruiting, you're the guy, you, the, you spend exactly the same amount of money as the guy who's no good at recruiting but you get a bunch of blue chippers and your team is much better and generates a lot more revenue and then competition in the market for coaches yep. causes you to, to, have, to get yeah, all that rest games, yeah. that would have been paid to the players. Yep. Sure. And so we are now in a world, uh, as, as you say, uh, if we go back to 2000, 
uh, it was unusual to have any coach make more than a million dollars a year. Now we have a whole bunch of them making five million. All right. And it's just going to continue that way that we have, we have gotten ourselves into a situation in which we start out with a lot of universities having their future depend on their political popularity and their political popularity depends on the quality of their athletics teams, especially football and or men's basketball. Yeah. That then creates this other environment where uh, the athletic directors and the coaches end up running the university and they are the main beneficiaries of all the money that's coming into the sport. You mean it's not run for the student athletes? Yeah, that's <laughs> shocking. Um, so a school like Stanford, we're sitting here on the Stanford campus right now, and Stanford is, as we said earlier, rather exceptionally, exceptional, yes. unusual in its ability to compete uh, at the national level in, in college sports and across a very wide array of college sports. Little known, it's, it's, it does exceptionally well in a bunch of sports that people don't pay a lot of attention yes. to. But, but in the ones that they do, football and basketball and sometimes baseball, they've also done quite well um, while maintaining standards. And I can, you know, I taught here in 1986 and was fortunate enough to have members of the Stanford baseball team in my economics class. They went to the World College, yeah. they won the College World Series that year, and they were they came to office hours. I mean, they didn't have people paying to take tests for them. And Stanford yeah. very, has very high standards. Is, is that an aberration or a model? Uh, it's, it's an aberration. Yeah. And the reason for it is um, the, the Stanford recruiting problem is to identify a very small fraction of the kids who are going to play at the highest level of intercollegiate sports who also are serious academics. Yeah. All right? There aren't enough of those to go around. I mean, I, you know, my, uh, my friends who are interested in sports economics with each other universities are insanely jealous of me. My, my summer RA this year is an undergraduate athlete. Mm-hmm. Who's running regressions for me? Yeah, <laughs> that's not that's not common. <laughs> and what what and the thing is, what Stanford did uh, a long time ago was not try to hide the fact that you have to be a student here. Instead, to try to use that as a recruiting advantage, and as a result, you know, to, by by just telling kids right from the get go, no. You're, the reason to come here is because you don't want to be just an athlete. You want to be a multidimensional person, and you want to be a good student, and you've been a good student. And that works for a small fraction. But the number, you know, like in a, in a typical year, the number of students who play football, who could get admitted to Stanford, is in the range of 70 to 80. And we have to get 25 of them. And so if, 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 it, if there were more than three or four schools out there trying to, to recruit it this way, we'd all be toast. Yeah. We couldn't possibly compete. Yeah. Um, so you started off by saying virtue's gotten more expensive, and, mm-hmm. and you talked about a change from 2000. That's, I assume, driven by ever larger TV uh, contracts and bull payouts. That's exactly dues, right. Corporate sponsorship and... The huge run-up in both the uh, March Madness 
yep. the NCAA basketball tournaments, both men's and women's. Women's is now the same thing. I mean, it's it's behind. Yeah. But women's right. basketball today is more popular than men's basketball was 15 years ago. So it's women's basketball is rapidly entering the same uh, domain yeah. of 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 the price of virtue being high. It's still it's nowhere near men's basketball, of course, or foot, men's football. If you're at the top, the the BCS uh, conferences in football. Um, so you have this huge engine that generates uh, enormous amounts of money, and it, basketball is especially profitable if you know the, I don't know if you heard the story a couple of years ago about the million dollar free throw all right the million dollar free throw was one of the small schools I think it might have been uh, it was one the one from the colonial league um, which was you know um, uh, an accidental entry into the NCA just because it won its conference tournament but it wasn't a top hundred team managed to win its first round game by after at the end of regulation, uh, a kid was fouled shooting, and if he made both free throws, they would win. And indeed, he made both free throws. That caused the payoff to the Colonial Athletic Association from the NCAA basketball tournament over the next five years to go up by a million dollars because they got one extra game. You get <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a mind-boggling. It's incredible. Get, yeah. So the bottom line is, your each conference is gets a share of the NCAA basketball revenues that is determined by the total number of games they played in the tournament in the previous five years. And so one game is now worth closer to $2 million. Wow. So when you put that much, you know, now think about how that translates into the pressure on the kid and the economic incentives to be sure you have a kid up there at the free throw line who's going to make the free throws. Yeah, yeah, that kind of sums it up. Yeah. Uh, and it explains, about, I mean, it's always been obviously true, but it, it's even stronger today that being a coach of where your economic well-being depends on the performance of 19-year-olds under pressure is, exactly. is a tough life. You can see why they're a little bit, it draws an unusual type of person into that into that world. It does, and, it, and, and uh, it's not... It's not, you know, it's it's interesting to, you know, observing the Stanford coaches. Um, they they have uh, they they have a from their perspective, it's a really tough thing because on the one hand they know that the expectations of them are not as high as they would be if they were at Alabama. Right. Uh, on the other hand, they know that that the recruiting problem is infinitely more difficult and yeah. uh and it's it's uh it's not an easy life they they work very long hours yes they do you know there and it's a tough job and i i don't begrudge them their success but there again you know we don't keep our coaches because we don't pay five million dollars right <laughs> so they, when they come, they 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 come, they fail, they get fired. They come, they succeed, they go on to somebody who will pay them more. Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears. I want to talk about um, steroids and performance enhancing drugs. Uh, one way to enter this discussion, I'll start with this question: Is should Barry Bonds be in the Hall of Fame? Um, if I had a vote for Barry, uh, for for him, I would certainly vote yes because the the incremental value of of performance enhancing drugs, no matter what the truth be, is behind the story of Barry Bonds, 
is is minor and um but i think that's not the interesting question good uh, it's a shocking answer. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We're, we're very most, <laughs> most sports fans, and certainly most sports writers, do not agree with that. But, I know. But uh, I agree that the, and I, my view is the impact is small. Um, the statistics that suggest otherwise are not very. Well, you ask yourself the question: prior to the slightest hint there was any use of performance-enhancing drugs by Barry Bonds, what kind of a baseball player was he? And he was a Hall of Fame-quality yeah. baseball player. Yeah, I have no, yeah, Now, you can debate whether, you know, if he lied under oath or did other things, that should keep him out of the Hall of Fame. But on, on well, the field, I also favor Pete Rose going into the Hall okay. of Fame. Okay, <laughs> right. right. So, but that's, you're saying that's yeah. not the interesting question. So yeah, what is the interesting question? Well, to me, the interesting In question is the... Uh, we have taken something that is borderline criminal behavior and delegated to a private organization the responsibility for defining what is legal and illegal and for inflicting the punishments. And to me, that's reprehensible. Hmm. I kind of like that, Roger. I'm going to have to disagree with you there, but go ahead and make the case. No, here, and here's, and the reason for it is that the World Anti-Doping Authority um, is an entity that earns its bread by ever expanding the list of things that are banned and testing for them and punishing people for them. You're talking its about incentives are wrong. You're not you're going beyond baseball here. You're talking about cycling, yes. Olympics. The whole banana. Okay. It it all flows It's all the same. It all flows from this superstructure that's been created. And the the if you if you drill down uh, and, and you read read the decisions of uh, uh, about athletes, a very large fraction of these cases are for ridiculous things, right? Because they have way overdefined what's a performance-enhancing drug, and so they're doing enormous harm. What, so why? Why is first explain the incentives for why they've expanded the list, and why that's bad? So start with what, well, what are the, the incentives for these the people in the organizations? The, the problem that athletes face is twofold. The first is that uh, you can go into a restaurant and have a meal, and you will, it's, it's possible that a standard ingredient in that meal is going to cause you to have a positive drug test and to be punished for it. All right? So, and that's because the, the, Criteria for deciding uh, what is a banned substance is, does it have, the first point is, is it possible that there exists a dose of this that would be performance enhancing, and B, can we test for it? Okay, so those, I agree that's a stupid rule, but why would they have that rule? And the reason they have that rule is because the World Anti-Doping Authority basically charges a piece rate. The, the fees you pay for that institution to exist and be out there catching the bad guys is proportional to the number of bad guys they catch. And, they, and they have, what's been happening, it's been delegated to these, these entities that are not part of the sports okay. uh, to decide for us what's legal and what's illegal, and what the punishment is. It's not being decided in a mechanism 
whereby the best interest of the athlete has anything to do with it or the best interest of the sport has anything to do with it. But many people would argue, and I'm not one of them, but many yeah. people would argue that it's in the best interest of the athletes to not have to deal with the temptation to tamper with their bodies in unhealthy ways. So this zealousness is a good thing because it reduces this, uh, this uh, private incentive this arms race between athletes, that they all start taking the steroids and they're not getting any ba- edge from it. All they're doing is hurting their bodies. Well, so that's the argument for making them banned. The, the very first question to ask yourself is precisely what is the steroid problem? Is it steroids? Because, uh, like, for example, you know, a few years ago, my wife had a frozen shoulder, which meant she couldn't play golf anymore. She went to the doctor. She got a steroid shot, one single steroid shot. In a couple of weeks, it cleared her up. She'd go back and play golf. And, Why, and she's it, hitting the ball a lot far? No, she's not. I'm no, sure. she's not. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a myth, but more but, or less. No, I mean, the, the point is that that uh, a, lot, a lot of the banned substances are uh, have important and and beneficial medical uses and uh you there is a medical use exemption but it's extremely difficult to get so let's stick with let's get away from this international issue which maybe we'll come back to but let's just go to baseball where it's not there is not an an outside body that's imposing rules and regulations on the players this is a Mm -hmm. you know the in theory because of the labor union and and the owners incentives they have both Somewhat, there's conflicts that I'm between them, but they've got some people, someone's looking out for the players in some dimension. It could be public good problems, collective bargaining problems, but someone's looking out for the players. Certainly, somebody's looking out for the sport. Um, you know, in my view, which might be similar to yours from what you're saying, is that they just should have left it alone. If people want to take steroids, they can. They'd find out maybe that they work or they don't, but it should be a private choice and no one should be. Tampering with it, but that's not the way they went. No, I can, but I can see why you wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I, um, uh, I think it's possible to design a perfectly rational drug program, but the 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 way it would have to be done is precisely uh, focus on the activities that would be a prisoner's dilemma. That right. where where there'd be a conflict between your. Self-interest. Where you're, if you're the the yeah, where a situation in which everybody feels the need to engage in behavior that is self-destructive. So, do you think steroids is that case? I think in some cases, yes, but much more limited than what the rules we've made against it. And uh, I think that the problem stems actually from a bigger problem in sports, which is the. The leagues and the teams have screwed things up pretty badly by the way they approach the medical care of players. The, the steroids problem is nowhere near as big a problem as the dementia problem for football players. I agree, which is coming big time. It's starting to, in the last two years, become salient and it's growing. And uh, it's a big, about big damage deal. to yes head damage from collisions. At the damage speeds. from collisions. The Permanent bodily injury that's 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 being done to football players is growing because the game gets faster and the players get bigger and the the hitting gets worse. the The leagues have not uh, attempted to adjust the rules to diminish it. They're they, starting to, but they but yeah they've what they've you know like for example um, uh, rugby players and football players play a similar game and they have similar physical attributes. They're big, they're fast. Uh, 
NFL players wear a missile called a helmet, yeah, no. and rugby players don't. No. Yeah. And rugby players don't suffer from these problems, and football players do. The yeah. so now now it's the greatest example of economic thinking and action that sometimes called the Peltzman effect. You put the helmet on to protect yourself; it makes the game more dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that so it's the 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 box we're in is that. Um, the, the, we start off with the players not willing to trust the league and the owners because they know that they don't take care of them, right? That, they, that, they, that the short-term incentives uh, to win today's game tend to overshadow the, the long-term incentives about the player's health. And that gets in the way of attacking the drug problem in a sane way, which is to focus on what the problem is as opposed to just have public relations-driven rules uh, that make you um, get by the sports writer who, who doesn't think very deeply about the problem and just thinks all drugs are bad. Right. So uh, if you had your druthers, you would liberalize the the rules of steroid use and other performance. I would liberalize them to some degree, but what I would weight do... Weightlifting, my favorite. Would you allow players to lift weights? I would, what I would do is, it seems to me that, they, that the athletes should be able to make the rules. And wh- whatever rules they want to make, that's okay, as long as it's legal. I mean, I don't think they should engage in illegal activities. Uh, I would rather fight the marijuana battle in yeah. Congress, Rather or than, yeah. you know, than than fight it in the NFL Players sure. Association. Yeah. But within the constraints, once you're, once the rules about drug use go beyond legality, then I think it's a, basically should be the players who decide. And uh, the problem, I think, it's not just professional sports; it's worldwide. That's why I go back to WADA. The athletes That's have the world almost no role in defining what the boundary is once you get past legality. And that's what's causing the problem. That's why we have over-enforcement, uh, why we don't focus the energies on taking care of the things that are genuinely a zero-sum game problem or a negative-sum game problem, a prisoner's dilemma problem. And that's, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to do that, but I do not think that uh, the current system is a, is a valid solution to that problem. So l- let's talk about the owner's incentives. Um, I, I've heard on talk shows recently, uh, and I think this is going to grow, uh, retired athletes asked, the question, do you want your kid to become a football player? You know, a great football player, a football player who is a Hall of Famer or a future Hall of Famer is asked, do you want your kid to be a football player? Because it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. We've always known it's dangerous, but now it looks like it might be more it's, dangerous. And it's becoming worse. It's becoming worse. Um, the owners have an incentive. The owners have an incentive there because they're going to have to start might have trouble attracting skilled young people into their sport. So that's ha- happening. So they do have an incentive to fix it, but it's a long run, long, long, long run incentive. So. Well, and I, I and and it's probably too long run, uh, in the sense that that the the time horizon of of owners in yeah, all different. professional sports is really quite short. It's a few years. But at the same time, as a fan of the sport. Mm-hmm. Many of us are, are going to be, are going to be, if not already, uncomfortable enjoying watching people 
hurt themselves in ways that we think might make it difficult for them to enjoy their grandchildren. Circus Maximus. Yeah, and I think that is a short run incentive really that's going to push them. Where do you think, I think that's going to turn out? What do, you think, um, what do you think this, let's start with football. What do you think football is going to do with this problem that you got very large people at high speeds running into each other and, and hurting each other? It's always been true. It's just that the hurt's getting bigger. My expectation is that the NFL will be very slow to deal with the problem, that it's more likely to be dealt with at the college level than at the NFL level. Although there may be some legal pressure on them, I think there could be some lawsuits that's going to push I them. agree that the, the the big wild card, you know, there's, what is it, 40-some lawsuits now out yeah. there against the NFL by from retired players. Yeah, yeah you. It, but the... The issue is, what will the financial hit be? It could be awfully big. Yes, it could. And uh, and of course, that if it is if it is really big, then uh, that would provide them with an incentive to change their behavior. But right now, prior to that, first of all, I'd, it's not at all obvious to me that the retired players are going to get a big payday from That's these true. lawsuits. Um, and uh, then the 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 second part of the story is. Um, I think you're right that uh, that the demand for uh, not just football but all professional supports has increasingly had a violence component to it. I mean, the hockey is the yeah. s- same problem. Basketball is a very different game now than it was 25 years ago. Much more physical. Uh, Much more, many more injuries, by the way, too. Not, it seems not, to me. It's not a game that, you know, as somebody who has played basketball all my life, it's not a game I would want to play if I were 20 years old, uh, the way it's currently played. You think you would have said that when you were 20 years old? Yeah, because I, I, I didn't like violent sports as a kid. How tall are you, Roger? 6'5". Okay, so Roger's six five. I'm five six. So it's a, it's a your basketball career was short. Short. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're we're taping this uh, in Roger's office, and uh, we're sitting down. So the differences <laughs> are still visible, but not as not quite as dramatic. So you play basketball your whole life. Um, by the way, did you play at the uh, what level of, of, of? I played in college. Yeah. And where was that? Well, but that was at Caltech. It was nobody nowhere. Uh huh. Yeah, but. Uh, they made a movie about it, but they did. <laughs> yeah, Quantum Hoops. Go see Quantum Hoops. Oh, cool! You can uh, you can you can rent it. <laughs> yeah, what's that movie about? It's a bo- it's a movie about Caltech basketball. Are you in it? I'm sure I am. Cool. Um, let's close. We're just about out of time, and you've, I know you've got to go play basketball today. You, Roger told me that he plays every day, uh, and uh, I'm sure it helps keep him fit. Close by talking about sports in our lives. You know, I'm a sports fan. You're a sports fan. Um, But my children's experience of sports is different than my experience as a child because of the wall-to-wall availability of sports coverage. Um, Now on the web, on TV, on the radio, it's it's a part of our lives and it's part of our culture that it was not – 30 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe even 15, 10 years ago. Why has that happened? Why has sports become so uh, interwoven with movies and day-to-day life in a way that it wasn't before? Well, the, the very first obvious point is the growing capacity of the media to deliver content. Um, the uh, uh, And sports is zero cost because it's already being produced for another purpose. So you can fill up television with all kinds of sporting uh, events that are not major league professional uh, for virtually 
no costs. And, and so that makes it ubiquitously available. But, you know, the interesting thing is I think another big change from when I was a kid versus now is how organized the participation is for kids. That uh, when I was a kid, uh, all sports were completely informal. It was going to the schoolyard and playing yeah, in the played school. Played around. Yeah, and yeah. Playing around. And I played it as much as my grandchildren play, but I never had the degree of organization. And I observe this, my, my, my daughter and son-in-law are constantly talking to me about at the level of 10 to 12-year-old kids, Travel the teams. intensity yeah. of coaching, the travel, yeah. the formal organization, the, the quest for financial sponsors. I mean, so it's it all is, part of the same phenomenon we've been talking about. It's all part of the same phenomenon. Yeah. And you have guys out there who are dealing with 10 year olds as if they're coaching in the NFL. Yeah. And that, that intensification of it. But that's because of parents who imagine their kids might get that payout down the road. Exactly. That, yeah. That that they want about, their yeah. kid to be able to, they, they, their goal is to bring their kid to the level that they can make a high school team and then get hope a scholarship that they'll get, get a scholarship to college. Maybe get drafted. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, this, and even in a, in a community like Palo Alto, which is you know, the top of the income distribution, the top of the educational distribution, you still have that. You still have this in, intense desire on the one hand of parents to have their kids be quasi-professionalized at age 10, and then the coaches feeling the pressure to win. You and know. now they have, a, well, they have a data point, right? Yeah. Mr. Lin was, uh, <laughs> right, was a Palo Alto High grad, I think. Yeah. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Um, NBA star, and that's a... Uh, people are often fooled by one data point. That's right. And, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I have enormous respect for Jeremy Lin. I, I think it is a great story. No, it's a beautiful story. Uh, but the reality is that is such a ridiculous long shot. Yeah. For anybody to change any of their behavior on the basis of that is ridiculous. Right. Um, but in any case, I believe that the, the commercialization incentive has permeated all the way down, and I don't see it being as much fun. Yeah. The, the notion that we engage in sports for, the, for, for a, uh, a, a, an entertainment and a, a recreation has been largely displaced by it being a job, even for kids. And okay. I think that's crazy. But it's all, it, it is driven by the same market phenomenon. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. On that cheerful note, my guest today has been Roger Knoll. <laughs> Roger, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.